Um, it's been said that you never have a second chance to make a first impression. Because first impressions, when you meet someone, that, they really matter, they're, they're important. They can have a profound effect on how you view someone and whether you're instinctively drawn to them or, or not. And so I wonder what your first impression of Christianity was. And I'll tell you what my first impression was. I thought it was basically about moralism, good behavior, being a good person. I thought, well, Jesus is good, and I need to be good. And I thought, I am pretty good, so what do I need Jesus for? And this first impression of Christianity meant that I wanted nothing to do with the church growing up. I wanted nothing to do with Christians, who I wanted to avoid, because I thought they were holier-than-thou do-gooders and not much fun to be around. And it wasn't until my penultimate term, my fourth year at university, that I actually had the opportunity to study the Bible and the gospel for myself, that I came to realize that this first impression that I had of Christianity was completely back to front. It is so easy to do. It is so easy to get a wrong impression of who Jesus is, what he's come to do, what Christianity is about. And that is why I think this passage is so helpful for us as we see Jesus' first sign. This is when we get the first impression of actually what Jesus is about, what his ministry is going to be about. Did you notice that in verse 11? We're on page 1065, where we read, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. Now, if you were here with us at the start of the sermon series, we looked at John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. You'll see it come up on the screen. This is John's purpose statement. This is why he is writing his gospel. Let me, let me read it out to you. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John is writing a very carefully structured, ordered account. He deliberately chooses certain signs from Jesus' life and ministry to prove to anyone who is reading his gospel, including us today, that Jesus is the Christ, is the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you and I have life in his name, and that is life to the full. And now, for the first time in John, we're getting the first sign. This is a new section in the gospel after the introduction in chapter 1. Chapter 2 to chapter 4, topped and tailed by the first and second sign, both in Cana, both in Galilee. And what would you expect the first sign to be? Like if I was to say, hey, imagine, what's this first sign? What's the first impression Jesus wants to give? I wonder what we'd think. Perhaps we'd think, well, Jesus is going to do a healing because there's so much pain and suffering in this world. And Jesus has come to set us free from that. We do get a healing in chapter 4, the second sign of the official son, not the first one. Perhaps Jesus is going to come and deal with hunger and poverty. That's his first sign. Actually, we get that in chapter 6 with the feeding of the 5,000, but not his first sign. This is not the first impression he wants us to get of him. Perhaps he'll raise someone from the dead. Death, the great enemy. He'll show us there's life after death, eternal life with him. No. That is not till chapter 11. What do we get for the very first sign? The very first impression of, what did you think? We're at a wedding. And the wine runs out. And Jesus basically gets the drinks in. So this party and this reception can just keep on going for a few days. I mean, does that come as a bit of a surprise? A bit of a shock, a little bit superficial, a little bit trivial. 
I mean, you think of a wedding, right? You think of fun, you think of joy, you think of singing, you think of dancing, you think of celebration. I mean, is that your first impression of Christianity? Is this really what Jesus is wanting us to think first and foremost? About the church, about Christians, about him? So let's explore it some more. Three things we're going to see about this sign. First of all, let's notice together the miraculous nature of the sign. This might be quite obvious um, to state, but important that we don't skate over it. Because in verse 6, if you glance down with me, you will notice that nearby there stood these six stone water jars. So what is in them is certainly water. And Jesus tells the servants to fill the jars to the brim. So Jesus is not filling them up, right? The servants are filling the ceremonial jars with the water to the very top. Nothing else can get in there. And then we are told that when the servants scoop out the water and give it to the master of the banquet, he sort of tastes it, and we're told he doesn't know where this water has come from in this cup. We are told in verse 10, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. So it's not all diluted down back then, okay? You can't get drunk on the wine back then. But you have saved the best till now. And so what has Jesus done? He has transformed 720 liters of water, right, with the chemical composition of H2O, into the most amazing wine that has ever been tasted with a completely different chemical compound and done it in an instant. Here is his first sign, turning water into wine. And look, this is no magic trick with a small amount of water and this is no sleight of hand because as I say, Jesus doesn't even touch the water's jar. You, you ask any chemists amongst you here. This is absolutely impossible except by way of miracle. And the author, John, is absolutely unashamed about this, unapologetic. This really happened. And he knows full well this is not a normal thing that can happen. Now, I'm conscious that miracles like these in the Bible can put people off Christianity might put you off a little bit, particularly when we think that what goes on in the Bible is so at variance to what we experience day to day. So you read the Bible, you think, my goodness, there are miracles on every page and all the way through, but in my life, I've not seen a miracle, and why this disconnect between the life of the Bible and my life? And so no wonder that people instinctively can start to doubt the veracity of the Bible and the veracity of, of miracles. And perhaps that's you, whether you call yourself here a Christian or not. How do we make sense of these? It might be helpful, if that is you, to point out that across the Bible as a whole, there are in fact only three relatively brief periods in the Bible where we get these clusters of miracles. And we get it with Moses and Joshua. We get it with Elijah and Elisha. And we get it here with Jesus and the apostles. And each of these three periods are relatively brief in time, like under 100 years. And so don't get me wrong, there are many miracles recorded in the Bible, 256 specific passages where we get that. But across the whole Bible, not as many as you, it's not in every page. Across the whole time frame of the Bible, it's only 5%. And if you take a character like King David, one of the central figures of the Old Testament, it seems that for him, through his long life, he did not witness or experience a single recorded miracle. So you're not alone if you've not seen one either. 
Now, don't get me wrong, there are miracles here. We have to think, what is going on? But this is verse 11, Jesus revealing his glory. His glory, chapter 1, verse 14, of the one and only Son who came from the Father. In other words, why is John so unapologetic, so unashamed about this? Because John is saying to us, here is the Son of God in human form, the Word made flesh, our maker, walking the earth, the one through whom all things were made, chapter 1, verse 3, water, grapes, yeast, the one whom spoke the whole universe into existence from nothing, so of course Jesus can turn water into wine if he is the fully human, fully divine Son of God. The miraculous nature of the sign. But of course, Jesus could have done any miracle to prove his divinity or miracle to show his power over the created order. Why this one? Why now? Why is water into wine at a wedding the first sign? So let's move on now, more importantly and secondly, to the deeper meaning of the sign. And I want to suggest to you that it's not as easy to work out as perhaps some of the other signs in John's Gospel where the author John explicitly gives us the explanation. Often you get sign, then explanation of the sign. Here in John chapter 2, you don't. Just get the sign, you're left thinking, hmm, what's this pointing to? And so you need to remember that this is part of the wider Bible. There's all the Old Testament before, the prophecies and promises leading up to this. This is in the context of John's Gospel. And I want to draw your attention to three pieces of detail in the text that I think give us clues. And I'm probably going to be showing my working more than I do up front uh, in a sermon, but this is because I want you guys to be really convinced of what Jesus is saying about himself and what he's come to do. So the first piece of evidence, a little attention to detail, comes right at the start of the passage in verse 1, where we are told that this all happened on the third day. And you might think, what's the relevance of that on the third day? Well, just glance back up to the previous chapter and verse, and verse 43, where again we read, the next day. And then back to verse 35, the next day. And then back over the page to verse 29, the next day. And then in 19 to 28, the first day. And so you put all this together and what's happening, this is happening on the seventh day. A new beginning, a new start of the week, a new era, a new age, a new creation. How did John Gospel start in chapter 1 verse 1? In the beginning, with echoes of Genesis chapter 1. But now a new, a new, there's a new start, an age in humanity's relationship with God. A new messianic age is beginning. Do you know how the, some of the Old Testament prophets described what this day and what this age would be like. Isaiah 25, verse 6, a banquet of aged wine, the finest of wines. Amos chapter 9, new wine dripping from the mountains, people drinking their wine. Joel chapter 2, the vats will overflow with new wine. What does Jesus come as the Messiah? Bring in this new age, this new beginning, humanity... And the wine is overflowing, and he's saying, this new age is here in me. Second piece of detail to notice here is how in the sign, Jesus takes on the role of the bridegroom. Do you notice that? That when the master of the banquet tastes the wine, he says, oh my goodness, this is like the best wine. Who does he turn to, to give credit to? He turns to the bridegroom. But he's not done it. Jesus has done it. 
The bridegroom has the responsibility to provide the wine at the wedding bed. That is what Jesus has taken on. Now, if you think I'm reading too much into this, just flick over to chapter 3. We'll get on to this in the next couple of weeks. And in verse 29, John the Baptist specifically, explicitly calls Jesus the bridegroom. In an answer to the question, he says, the bride belongs to the bridegroom, the friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. Talking about Jesus Christ. And so this new messianic age, this new stage in humanity's relationship with God is now being described in the language of the deep, intimate love that a bridegroom has for his bride on their wedding day. Third, a little bit of detail I wanted to draw your attention to is the somewhat strange response that Jesus gives to his mother in verse 4 when she says the wine's run out. When you heard the reading, do you think, oh my goodness, that's a little bit weird. Woman, not mum, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. I'm just asking you to like sort out the wine. What are you talking about some hour? Jesus seems a little bit distracted, like his mind's elsewhere. Like, what is going on? What's Jesus talking about? If you are familiar with the Gospel of John as a whole, you will know that time after time, this phrase, the hour, the hour has not yet come, the hour is coming. The hour has now come for the Son of Man to be raised to show his glory on a cross, dying for the sins of the world. If you want some references for that to look up later, chapter 7, verse 30, 8, verse 20, 12, verse 23, 13, verse 1, or grab me uh, afterwards. But what we are seeing here for Jesus at a wedding day, looking forward to the ultimate wedding to come, the marriage supper of the Lamb, being a bridegroom, pouring out his love on humanity, bringing this, he knows what it's going to cost. He knows what it's going to cost right at the start of his ministry. It's going to cost him everything. It's going to cost him his own life. But he will go through it for you and for me. So, why is this the first sign? At a wedding, overflowing wine, the sacrificial love of a bridegroom for his bride, because this is the first impression that Jesus wants us to have of him. Not rules, not regulations, not external moral performance, but overflowing, sacrificial love in the greatest relationship of all. You have saved the best till now. One of the great longings of the human soul, is it not, is for us to be known, for us to be accepted, for us to be loved, to be in a relationship, to love and be loved. There's, there's so much pain and suffering in the world. There are so many broken friendships and broken families and high divorce rates, and there are many people who are single who long to be married. There are many people who are married who long to be single because it's not what they thought it was going to be cracked up to be, the married life. And even the best of friendships, even the 
strongest of marriages. None of them can cope with death. Ultimately, we are all robbed of our loved ones at the end of our life. And yet here is Jesus saying, look, I will love you like no one else. I will be the true, perfect bridegroom to you. I will pour out my love upon you. I will pay for your sin. I will defeat death. There will be nothing in the whole universe that can never separate you from my love. That is how secure this is. I will forgive you. I will pour out my spirit upon you so that you may reciprocate that love, so that you may enjoy fellowship and communion with me both now and forevermore. That is why this is the first sign, because this is the first impression he wants us to get. If you are someone here looking into Christian things, please, please do not make the same mistake I made for the first two decades of my life, thinking that Christianity is fundamentally about being good enough for God. Pure moral obedience, external conformity, rules and regulations, it's not. It's about a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and being loved by him like a bridegroom loves their bride on a wedding day, a love so overflowing that the more you trust in Christ and the more you follow him and the more his love like works in you and through you and out of you for the good of others and society, you feel less and less insecure It is a love so sacrificial that you are completely accepted and forgiven. You no longer need to feel shame at all anymore. It is a love so steadfast, a love so unshakable that you never need to fear your future again. It is an eternal love. It is the very relationship we were made for. It is the one relationship that ultimately counts. You have saved the best till now. So, how do you and I enter into this relationship? Make sure that we got this love and we receive, okay. Let's move on thirdly and finally to the positive response to the sign, which we can see, again, it's in verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of his signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So this is how we enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. We believe in him. That is, we place our trust in him. That is, we say, look, I do want to follow you. I accept that you have paid for my sin. I want to know this relationship. I want to know this love. Please fill me with your love. Notice the order of verse 11, that first of all, it is Jesus who reveals his glory through this sign, and only then did the disciples believe in him. I think it's really important that we get this order straight for two reasons. First, there is no such thing as blind faith in the Bible. There is no such thing of sort of leaving your brain at the door, you gritting your teeth, and you saying, okay, I believe, you know, even in all your rational senses tell you otherwise 
The disciples believe in Jesus because he has revealed his glory to them and they have seen it. They've seen what's happened from the water into the wine. They've seen what this sign is, what it's saying about Jesus and his love for them, what he has come to do. And having seen it, they are then moved to put their faith and trust in him. Biblical faith is never blind. Biblical faith is always a positive response to the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is belief in him, in a person. Trust. The order of verse 11 is also important, I think, especially for those of us who are already followers of Jesus Christ because we can't in and of ourselves manufacture a deeper faith and trust in Jesus. We can't sort of make ourselves, by ourselves, love him even more. To be a Christian is to admit you are sinful, that by nature we love ourselves and we trust ourselves way more than we do Jesus Christ. And the only means of getting this deeper trust, this deeper faith, is actually by looking away from ourselves and looking to Jesus Christ and seeing his glory in this sign, seeing his glory ultimately on the cross, this final demonstration of his love poured out for us and us then saying to ourselves, oh my goodness, like that is how much you love me, that you would do that for me. Pay this ultimate sacrifice for me. That is how much you forgive me, even when I keep mucking up and keep mucking up, and you still you forgive. And it is looking to him and what he's done for us and having our hearts captivated by him. That is what changes us. That's what gives us a deeper faith and trust and belief in him. Don't you find it a lot easier to trust people who you know love you, who you know care for you, people who give up their time and energy for you, make sacrifices for you. And my wife Jo has made many sacrifices for me over the years. I won't go into them now, but one year I did forget our wedding anniversary and that didn't go down too well. But the more I see Jo's love for me, her care for me, her sacrifices, the more I grow in my appreciation of her and my deeper trust in her. How much more so when it comes to Jesus Christ and the ultimate sacrifice that he has paid for you and me. He held nothing back for you. He went to the cross for you. He drank the cup of his father, God's wrath at our sin so that we could drink the overflowing wine of his love for all eternity. If you are in any doubt of God's love for you this, this afternoon, look afresh at the cross and see Jesus dying for you and hear Jesus saying to you, I love you. Taste and see that the Lord is good, the psalmist says. This is not just something to hear intellectually, this is something to experience by faith. To know deep inside just how loved by God, your maker and your saviour you are. And it changes everything. And just to be clear as we, before we close, that this relationship with Jesus Christ is totally undeserved. It is totally undeserved. If anyone deserved a relationship with Jesus or if anyone sort of could expect that the relationship with Jesus was all okay, it was probably his mother, Mary, right? I mean, she carried Jesus in her womb for nine months. She nursed Jesus. She nurtured Jesus over many years. But how was she called in this passage to relate to Jesus? 
With him as her son? No, with him as her Messiah, her bridegroom, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin. Woman, not mum. Why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Mary does not get a free pass. She needs to put her faith in Jesus Christ too. We all do. So come as you are, whoever you are. Let's come open hands, undeserving, open hearts, undeserving, by faith, towards Jesus. And let him fill you afresh with his love. This is what Christianity first and foremost is all about. So let me pray that for us now. Let's pray. Father God, we thank and praise you for this first sign in the Gospel of John and what a sign it is. Probably not what we expect, Jesus turning water into wine on a wedding day. But wow, it makes sense in the wider biblical story. Longing for this new age on the seventh day. Jesus taking on the role of a bridegroom. This intimate, deep, secure love and one that can only come about through his death on our behalf for our sin, his hour of glory. So please would you help us, wherever we're coming from today, to see Jesus' glory revealed in this way and have our hearts captured afresh by his love, his unconditional love, a love we don't deserve, a love that transforms us for eternity. Would that move us to come to him, perhaps for the first time, but for most of us here to go deeper in our trust and relationship with him. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.